0: Resurrection Church podcast. I am joined today by Matthew Bates. Dr. Bates is professor of theology at Quincy University in Quincy, Illinois. He's a Protestant who enjoys the challenge of teaching in a Catholic context, and his writings are primarily about the gospel. His writings include Salvation by Allegiance Alone, Gospel Allegiance, The Gospel Precisely, and in a book that was just released, Why the Gospel. At our church, we give out the gospel precisely to first-time guests. And I recently taught a Bible class answering the question, what is the gospel, using the gospel precisely as the curriculum basis. Um, We've also been going through the Book of Romans in our sermon series, and many of these same concepts have appeared here. In the interview, I unfortunately failed to hit record for the first several minutes that Matthew Bates was talking, so I'm going to try to fill in the gaps, and then we'll start the interview. Um, I, I had asked him what his basic claim was about the gospel, and then I had asked him to position that claim beside a free grace articulation of the gospel and lordship salvation. So, when his voice starts speaking, he had just finished talking about how he defined the gospel and what free grace salvation was. And he comments that he distances himself from the free grace theology. And then he begins to talk about how his claims relate to lordship salvation. So, let me start by reading his definition of the gospel in the gospel precisely. He writes. Jesus is the saving king. He preexisted with God the Father. In accordance with God's promises, Jesus became human in the line of David, died for our sins, was buried, was resurrected on the 3rd day, was seen, was installed as king at God's right hand, sent the spirit and will return to rule. That definition of the gospel obviously is a bit different from free grace salvation theology and you'll hear his comments about that in just a moment. But I hope that you enjoy this interview. I found it really encouraging and insightful. I tried to just jump around and ask him about as many concepts in his books as possible. Um, So it's a little bit disjointed at times, but I hope it will encourage you to pick up some of his writings and to consider the gospel more carefully.
1: I would distance myself strongly from that, saying that um, such a claim has misunderstood the shape of the gospel, misunderstood what the word faith means, pistis in Greek, misunderstood what grace charis means, um, and has has misunderstood how works actually fit into salvation too, as most Protestants down through the ages, almost all Protestants have affirmed that works are required for salvation. Uh, some Protestants have gotten confused about that, but the reality is is that works have traditionally been understood as required for salvation just as much as for Catholics too. Um, so um, they're just positioned differently within the system, right? And mm-hmm. and uh, so trying to get all that right um, is important. So moving on from there then to the second piece, which would be the Lord lordship salvation, um, John MacArthur responded to uh, the crisis uh, that was brewing around the free grace movement and people uh, being attracted to that because he saw that as an error and correctly saw that as an error, I think. And he, w- he became the kind of the leading champion uh, of the lordship salvation movement. And the lordship salvation movement, um, if I was to describe its energy, um, it was wanting to say that Jesus has to be your lord, too, for salvation to be true. Um, and, but it wants to put works, um, on the back end of salvation so that it wants to say, um, okay, first Jesus died for your sins. Okay. Accept that he's your savior. Um, and, uh, once that happens and you have joined God's family, oh, then, oh, and by the way, did you know when you made that decision that Jesus was your savior, that you actually got a Lord too, that now he's the king of your life also, and that, and that, um, that you need to now follow him as your king. You've got a king too. And he was kind of part of the package. And this king then will help you work out your salvation and will help you in some way to perform good works. But the the reality is is that um yeah, that like if you love the king, um you don't have to do any good works for your salvation. It's not really required, but you just will. Like it'll just kind of be a natural outflow um the fruit will just be produced if if your faith, your saving faith was authentic then you can't help but love your lord and and your and then produce good works through your lord okay so it wants to put a lot of the energy on the about works on the back end of salvation I think a truer articulation of how these things fit together from a scriptural standpoint would be to recognize that the word faith itself, pistis, is something that's embodied and relational from the beginning. And that's that's what would make my proposal distinct from lordship salvation, and that there's no possibility of salvation coming through anything but Jesus's kingship. That Jesus's kingship and all that it entails, including, of course, his death for sins, his resurrection, his enthronement, his pouring out of the Spirit, through all that Jesus's kingship entails, our salvation is carried forward for us so that our forgiveness from sins or the healing that needs to happen from our sins doesn't come apart from his kingship, but only through it. So it's not first savior, then king. It's king all the way through. And it's also allegiance all the way through in the sense that faith is understood as something embodied and relational and something that's larger than merely trust or merely uh, believing something.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Uh so, kingship is what everything flows out of, including salvation. It's not you find a savior first, who then you make the Lord of your life, which maybe is sort of a Keswick ish way of looking at things. Um, so, I, I appreciate that distinction. But I think when people are hearing your message, they're also hearing it without being able to change the reality of the Protestant Reformation in the way that gospel terminology. And what it means to be saved is framed following out of that. So I think sometimes when I've talked with people about your book, they hear this idea of faith as allegiance as a work for salvation or a violation of justification by faith or a sidelining of salvation. Um, how Have you experienced that pushback from people who have read your books? And if so, how do you respond to that?
1: yeah, I have sometimes encountered that kind of pushback. Um, yeah, obviously, um allegiance is not trying to work for salvation in some way. It's about loyalty to a king. It's not about trying to stack up a certain quantity of good deeds on your balance sheet. Um, so it's not about works' righteousness in the sense of trying to earn salvation through doing uh, you know enough good deeds, on the one hand, a quantity or about having a certain, maybe heroic good deed that could like, so, okay, I've lived a crummy life, but if I just do this heroic act for God, then he'll accept me. Um, Yeah, it's obviously not, it rejects both of those kinds of ideas and says, no, it's about a fundamental posture of trying to be loyal to the King, but this doesn't demand a perfect loyalty. And I think that's a a confusion or concern that people have. They tend to think, well, okay, if you're going to like be saved by your loyalty to King Jesus, then it has to be a perfect loyalty. And I would say no, no. I mean, we're talking about faith. It doesn't have to be—when Does your when you think of faith as mental or intellectual, does you have to have a perfect mental faith or a perfect intellectual trust in order to believe? And people tend to say, no, um, no, you just need to have, as we begin to dive through Scripture, faith like the size of a mustard seed might be sufficient. I would say also with our loyalty, like um, we're going to fail. We're going to be disloyal to our king. We we need to have an overall trajectory of loyalty. We, we repent from that sin, and we get back up, and we say, I'm going to try to be loyal to you again king jesus and i'm stuck in this sin that i'm you know meanwhile um uh, enslaved by temporarily but i i realize you've broken my chains and i need to live in light of your spirit and i get up and i repent and i walk with you again so i i think that um upon deeper reflection most people agree that um that we can't just presuppose that faith means something mental and then run with it and then somehow or another say that it works or everything else, right? Um, and that that's a, a misunderstanding of the term faith. Once we understand that faith itself involves something embodied and relational, um, then I think people do realize that, yes, you don't need a perfect uh, faith or allegiance, right? It can be imperfect. So I do think that helps um, has helped people uh, overall to understand the proposal.
0: Yeah, I think the title of one of your books Salvation by Allegiance Alone can be a little bit jarring for people. Maybe in a helpful way to to draw attention to it. Um and as you as you talk about those things, I don't think that you're trying to say pistis must be translated as allegiance only, but you're really getting at the concept of a commitment, a lasting commitment to Jesus, connection to him. Um so yeah, would would you say you're just trying to get that concept and you think allegiance is the best word or are are you suggesting we should cross out faith every time we see it in the New Testament and plug in allegiance instead?
1: Now, I, I would say that faith—the um, word pistis can be translated as faith, acceptably. It can be translated as belief. Indeed, it has to be translated as belief sometimes. Um, whenever we have it, um, for instance, the verb pistuo, whenever it's followed by the word hati in Greek, like that means believe that something. It's—it's going to introduce an intellectual proposition to be affirmed. We have to translate believe in that in that case. But the word is just a big word. It's a—it's a word that involves a lot of different ideas. And I think that um, it's indisputable that the word sometimes means loyalty or allegiance. And in Mm -hmm. fact, it's a fairly common meaning in the Greco-Roman era. That the the New Testament within the New Testament and its world, it is a fairly common meaning, Um, and so um, this can be understood as faithfulness, as loyalty. But if you look up, you know, the standard dictionaries on the New Testament, it's going to speak about, um, you know, about pistis as faithfulness uh, or other ideas associated with fidelity. Like so, translators have known for ages um, that this is how. The word uh, has this sort of dual function, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I think due to specific concerns about works um, and within a Protestant framework, there is a tendency to ignore the loyalty portion of it and to say, well, what really must be involved is the trusting idea, not really the loyalty idea. But um subsequent study has shown, um, and this is not just my study, but studies by people like Teresa Morgan's and Peter Oaks and NJ e. Gupta, um, and the list could go on, uh, F. Gerald Downing, like they they've all shown that that faith means something bigger than that. And that you can't like and also this is important, I think, that we you normally when words are used, they're not disambiguated in the sense that they they don't automatically close off on one of two meanings so that if like there are two strong meanings associated with with the word like the word pistis, if on the one hand it means faith in, and the other it means loyalty toward, normally both are in view unless an author disambiguates for us or a context disambiguates. So when Paul uses the word pistis in Romans, for instance, we would would think that probably Paul had ideas of both faith and fidelity or loyalty in view in his language unless he deliberately excludes one or the other. Um, And so that's just standard for how language, how words mean things and how language works.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's even kind of the way that we use terms like believe now in a conversation. Like if a husband asks his wife, do you trust me or do you believe me? He's asking, do you have a conviction that what I'm saying is true and calling to a commitment kind of at the same time, Mm -hmm. not separating those two out between a mental assent and a you know, embodied reaction or something like that. Yeah. So uh, often in your writing, I've noticed that you'll use one of Paul's articulations of the gospel, and then you'll draw on Jesus's teaching or the gospel authors to bring clarity to that. And I'm wondering if you've noticed a pattern as you've talked with people of a separation between the Jesus of the Gospels and the Paul of the Epistles, almost as if they're communicating different realities or different messages. Is that common or am I misreading things?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's common. Um, Sometimes um, I think Scott McKnight writes about this in his The King Jesus Gospel, uh, which is an excellent book. But I think he writes about how he was having conversations with um, or a conversation with a pastor. And then Scott had asked the question, like, does, um, you know, does Jesus preach the gospel? And the answer that this person said was no. Like, you know, the gospel is that Jesus, you know, is essentially that Jesus died for my sins so that I can go to heaven and that we don't really find this articulation in the gospel because Jesus is still in the process of doing that. Right. Um, And it helped, um, I think, uh, both Scott and his conversation partner to realize, no, something deeper has to be going on here and helped Scott in that book press for greater clarity. So yeah, really Jesus' central teaching is the kingdom of God, right? Um, And as we press into what does that mean? It means that God was in the process of beginning to rule in a more active way again. Um, And so that there was a sense that like God, although he's always in charge, he's always sovereign, he's always running the universe, that uh, part of the way in which God may choose to, Run the universe in his sovereignty is by allowing humans to uh, experience the consequences of their own folly so that as humans um, go their own way, like um, God may say, um, well, I've built into creation certain mechanisms that uh, mean that as people choose to go in their own way, there's going to be a spiral downward for them. Uh, They're going to experience the consequences of their own stupidity. Um, If they choose to go in their own way and to ignore me, um, there's a a built-in kind of natural order dimension to things that there's going to be um, an experience to them of their own, uh, of the consequences of their own sin. Um, but that God would not allow that to go on forever, but God would intervene. And, and when he intervened, that would be when he established a new era or a new epic that he would usher in. And the name for this epic uh, is given a variety of names within ancient Judaism. Sometimes it was just called, um, you know, the, the, the age to come. Um, at other times it was called the kingdom of God. Right and so when Jesus comes and he says the kingdom of God is drawn near people heard like you know that Jesus was beginning to usher in this more active time where God would judge sin and would, um, would begin to rule in a more direct way over his people, not allowing them to experience the consequences of their own folly, but intervening in this more dramatic way. So, um, yeah, once we realize that Jesus' main topic is the kingdom of God, and we look at some Pauline statements, we realize that Paul, whenever he's teaching about, about um, the gospel, he's not teaching just about Jesus dying first, he's talking about the Christ doing it. Right. um, And things like that. And when we start paying attention to these things, we realize that Christ is royal language. It's kingly language. So that Paul sees Jesus as having become this king. Right. Who's now ruling on God's behalf. Meanwhile, Jesus is announcing that these things are about to happen. Right. That, that God is going to begin to take more active rule. Paul sees that as having happened. Right. Jesus has become the Christ. He is that active ruler now. And so now he is um, uh, in the process of ruling the universe from God's right hand. So yeah, I think there's a lot of continuity between uh, the gospel as we find it in the gospels and the gospels we find it in Paul's letters. Uh, but I do think that uh, people have, have been slow to see the connection, but the connection is is the idea of the Christ or the kingship right idea that really marries those together.
0: Yeah, in, in your recent book, Why the Gospel, you use the catchy line, Christ is a claim, not a name. Hmm. Uh, could you talk more about what you mean by that? Um, Because I think it fits with this proclamation of Jesus, his crucifixion because of his claims for being Christ, at least in part because of that, and then Paul's regular references to Jesus in that way.
1: Yeah. So, I, yeah, I say that Jesus Christ is a claim, not a name, uh, because I think that we sometimes when we hear the term Christ, and this is even theologians, and this is actually even Reformation era stuff, whenever they, they're working with the term Christ, that's just a cipher for Jesus. It's just another way of speaking about Jesus. Uh, but that's actually sloppy. And and in that sloppiness, like we end up with an imprecise theology. Because there's royal overtones to all that that we can't miss, right? When Paul says, in the Christ, this or that, he's talking about in the king, right? That we have certain benefits. And so when we miss all that, um, yeah, there's some slippage. So when I say that Jesus Christ is a claim, not a name, it's an assertion that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, he's actually become the ruler of the universe. He's become the Christ. Um, So, yeah, uh, that's what I mean by the claim, not a name. Another way of circling around these ideas that I think is helpful to people is to see that the becoming the king thing is a process right? That Jesus doesn't start as the Christ in the full sense, right? Mm-hmm. Like when he's born, like God intends him to become the Christ one day, but he has to be christened or Messiah through his baptism when the Holy Spirit comes to rest upon him. That's when he becomes the Christ within history in a, in a kind of formal sense. But even then he doesn't yet exercise full authority, right? He hasn't been installed at the right hand of God, and it's when he claims his throne, right? Whenever he ascends to the right hand of God, that's when he's made the Christ in the fullest kind of sense. So that also helps us to see that, like, that's part of the reason why it's a claim, not a name, is because it's an office that he comes to hold, and the claim is he's the one who really holds that office, right? And that, that can help us make sense of how, yeah, kingship works um, and how it functions.
0: Yeah, I think that's really helpful, and we can track that like progressive coronation through incarnation, um, you know, baptism, transfiguration, ironic crucifixion, coronation yes. event. And as we we just finished going through Romans one for our in our Roman series, in that mm. idea of the resurrection to be the Son of God in power is another coronating Absolutely. event. Yes. And then of course the ascension. I guess we we yeah. can't overlook that. Um, So, okay. so I think we're when we're trying to correct our sloppiness there, you give some suggestions on how to remember this is a claim, not a name in your own personal conversations or at your church. Uh, do you refuse to sing Christ Alone Cornerstone? Do you sing oh, the no. Christ Alone? No, or, of course. No, I, <laughs> I,
1: I mean the, the song is the song, and they, they have power as they're written, and I don't think we need to dispense of all of our you know heritage in that sense. But I do think that like it helps if we have in our mental uh, yeah in our mental space we have something along the lines of this is King, right? Mm-hmm. In King Alone, right, is what I'm kind of thinking when I sing in Christ Alone. Uh, but some of the songs, yeah, they do make it hard to connect all that. Um, or they don't encourage us to connect um, that that we're talking not about just a person, but a, like so. Whenever we, re- we sing in Christ alone cornerstone, we shouldn't be thinking in Jesus alone. We should be thinking in the King alone. But the the King is uh, or or in the office of kingship that happens to be held by the person Jesus, whom we worship as the very Son of God and the one who holds the throne. So mm-hmm. it's not disconnected from the man Jesus. He's the one who who actually fulfills that office, obviously. Right. Um, So, no, I don't think we need to dispense with with those kinds of ideas. But I do think we need to kind of have a multi-tiered approach as we as we try to help people understand. We need to kind of move between sometimes saying King Jesus and other times saying Jesus the Messiah, other times saying Jesus the Christ, and other times just explaining what does this even mean, like circling back. Right. And I think that we don't want to we don't want to just go King Jesus either. I think if we just exclusively just start talking about King Jesus, that's a mistake, because we have to recognize that, that this is the climax of Israel's story for the sake of the world, right? Mm-hmm. And we can't lose the specificity of Israel uh, that is behind this whole narrative right? As God is working through a particular family and in order to bring about saving purposes for the whole world. And that if we don't do that, then we run into the danger of supersessionism, where people are like, don't even think the Old Testament is God's word or don't care about it or don't know how it actually contributes to the whole story. So we've got to, I think, work just on multiple levels. But mm-hmm. part of the reason we need to go with King Jesus, because people don't realize Christ means king, right? So we just got to keep doing both and keep yeah, agitating around those ideas together.
0: Yeah, that's helpful. So I think maybe going a little bit behind the scenes in your thinking, you seem to blend a lot of Hebraic background and Greco-Roman background. So not so far as to be like imperialism, imperial criticism kind of reading as if there's a hidden code in the gospel, but also placing it within the Greco-Roman framework of church shared language for like salvation lord these sorts of things how how do you see yourself or how do you see the apostles and Jesus utilizing the old testament while also speaking within their contextual world
1: yeah, I mean, a great example of this would be like Nijay Gupta's work on faith, Paul and the language of faith. He points out examples where pistis language means is, is essentially covenant response language. Um, so yeah, like, like this is all connected to a, an, an Old Testament, you know, understanding where God is in covenant with His people. Like God's obligation as part of that is to provide for His people, and the, within the balance of His promises, right? There's sanctions if the people disobey, if they're disloyal, right? <laughs> to God, they're going to experience covenant curses, um, which will come. Upon them or covenant blessings if they're faithful, right? As part of the whole framework of the Old Testament. So it's very strong, um, you know, kind of loyalty ideas bound up with all that. And the people then are called to love God, right? But this is not just like an emotional idea. Sometimes we psychologize or we romanticize or we emotionalize like love language, just because that's what we are familiar with. But chesed love is covenant faithfulness, right? It's 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 like sometimes some translators don't translate that word chesed as love which was instead of love the Lord your God, I mean, they're like, like, it's more like show covenant loyalty to the Lord your God, right? So all of these ideas are very, very closely related to, yeah, the Old Testament background. And obviously, when we're talking about our New Testament authors, they're all Jews. Uh, They're all working within, um, you know, their thought world is the, the world of the Old Testament, as that was mediated through the Greek translation of Scripture. Uh, to them um so yeah I, I don't think we would want to drive a wedge between uh the old testament and the new in this way and i think my project i hope capitalizes on the continuity
0: yeah that's that's helpful well, i want to shift to um ask you about what salvation is and what salvation means uh, we've talked about the gospel's content and events but the results or the production of salvation maybe in term or the gospel in terms of salvation what what does salvation mean in the biblical
1: world yeah so i mean i think it means the restoration of wholeness like we think about the biblical idea of shalom like being connected to peace like there's like the the, the the main idea would be that god like that it's a re, it's a restoration would be the main idea of salvation of what god intended for creation so that we we falsely conceptualize salvation whenever we restrict it to a kind of narrower set of ideas connected with merit uh, and the idea would be like, okay, well, I lack something that, you know, I have some deficiency that, and so that God won't accept me. What is that deficiency? What's well, my sin problem? So if I can just get that papered over somehow or uh, put, put, apply a little bit of Jesus's blood to that area, right? Mm-hmm. Well, then like I'm reconciled with God and I'm good to go. But that misunderstands like that, that tends to put um, salvation too much in a merit lack of merit kind of framework that um, I think has dominated a lot of the Western conversation about salvation. Um, A a more thoroughgoing idea would be, or a a better way of approaching this problem would be to instead think about salvation from an individual standpoint, what can I get out of of it, but instead think about it more from a God's God's, uh, eye point of view, to kind of try to like put ourselves into God's position and to say like, why does God want to save us Right, like, what's God's motivation? Okay, we could say, well, his deepest motivation is obviously his love for his creation, right? That's part of it, intrinsic to who God is that he loves, right? Um, as these, he's for the other uh, in this kind of radical way. But as part of that, then, like, um, what does God want to do is, um, like, he creates a creation where he intends humans to, to do a certain task within creation. We're made in his image, and so that we then can image God correctly to the rest of the created order and to one another. So the idea is that God creates us in order to bear glory would be the way in which Scripture wants to speak about it. So that we are our ideas are the idea is that we need to carry God's glory and so that the rest of the nations can see God's who God is, and that we can uh, superintend creation correctly as as we're. Um, we're in some way or another proclaiming God's fame or His reputation and and spreading His fame and reputation through correct stewardship. Right, and so that's really why God created humans. And then when humans sin, like the sin the sin is not just like a guilt problem, right? Like the problem is that it causes harm and, and 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 causes us to fail to do what humans are supposed to do. That humans no longer correctly image God. So whenever we reject God's kingship, God gives us wise rules, um and one of those wise rules in the, in the garden, right, is obviously not to eat from the uh the the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Um, and uh, humans obviously violate that command by, by choosing to to, uh, to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which has to do then with our moral prerogatives or our moral choices. Uh, and really our fundamental human problem, and we see this all over the place in culture, is that we don't want to let God tell us what's right and wrong. We want to decide that for ourselves. We want to take charge over over the areas of right and wrong. And we want to say, no, I get to decide what's right and wrong. I don't care how you've created the world. I don't care that you are uh, the creator at all, or if you even exist, I don't know. Right. But I'm going to create my own rules for how I'm going to behave. And when we do that, we have we've we've usurped God's authority. Right. And then we begin to introduce harm into the world, harm to ourselves, too. Um, And so salvation is only going to be complete if it's undoing that harm. Okay, and that's where we we sometimes don't see things from a God's eye point of view. Like we're like we look at salvation and we're selfish. Uh, We're like, what can I get out of it? Like, well, I I need to get my sins forgiven so I can go to heaven. Um, That's a selfish way of looking at it, because when God's looking at salvation, God's saying, I want my creation in its entirety to flourish. I made humans so that they could make that happen. Like that's that's how creation is designed. Creation will not flourish unless humans do what I made them to do. How can I restore humans to their full humanity? How can I how can I help them recover their glory so they can begin distributing it again? Because that's actually going to be good for them, good for all of creation, and ultimately it's going to be good for God, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's really the, the the problem God's trying to solve through uh, the gospel is how to restore glory. So when we talk about salvation, we're talking about the fullness of of of, of restoration for God, for creation, for humanity.
0: Okay, so um. Positioning that to a lot of popular ways of talking about salvation, I, I think I grew up in a world that said you're primarily being saved from hell, and so you pray the prayer, and if you prayed the prayer rightly, then you're you're kind of good. You you have the fire insurance in a way, and hopefully you won't be a carnal Christian. Hopefully you'll like develop in the faith or something. But you're you're almost talking about it as if there's a cosmic power of sin or a, a a universal reigning of Christ over things, bringing restoration. And then as a subset of that, we find our restoration in that broader picture. Is that
1: right? Yeah, that is right. And I think that Paul even, I'm like it's agreed by all scholars that as far as I know, that Paul personifies sin and understands sin to be a cosmic power, for instance, in Romans 6. Right? And so that Christ's defeat of um, sin and death and uh, the evil spiritual forces in the world, right, is a cosmic victory uh, that we that we have in view here. So, yeah, we wouldn't want to think about salvation as restricted to fire insurance or something along those lines, right? And I think we all intuitively know that's wrong. Um, but we, maybe the models that we've been taught growing up, um, just are like a little too simple, right? And that the gospel has a beautiful simplicity, but it's not simplistic, right? And, um, maybe the simplicity that we've learned is just the wrong simplicity, right? The simplicity that we learned is that Jesus died for your sins, believe that, or trust in that, and you get to go to heaven and you're, you're saved from hell and death and whatever, right? Um, the, the, the beautiful simplicity of the gospel is, is, is equally simple, but it's different. It's that Jesus is the rescuing king, and that he's come to rescue all of creation, and he's doing that through creating a people that you get to be part of. And that as you join his people, then you experience liberation from sin, and you begin to have that harm undone, and that there's a spiral upward of glory restoration that's happening in the midst of God's people. And it's equally simple, right? It's it's about responding with a loyalty to King Jesus, right? As he's the mm-hmm. one who will restore all things. Um, uh, it's it's uh, it's just a different shape.
0: Sure, yeah. So it, it's comprehensive enough to bring salvation from the present wrath of God and are being handed over to sin, but then also whatever the future wrath of God takes shape as that Paul talks about later. Um, so I think this leads to a question that comes up regularly when I've talked with people about your book, and that has to do with justification as a forensic declaration and justification as internal transformation. So you're okay. you're a yeah, Protestant a teaching at a Catholic. Here. Sure, yeah. Yeah, so maybe you can uh, talk about that. I, I could maybe ask some more specific questions, but more generally, how does your articulation of the gospel relate to both of those realities.
1: Yeah, and I'll, I'll try to not to get too technical, as I could talk about this probably for a long time. You could ask follow-up questions if you want, but the basic—okay, so the basic Protestant model has been called imputed righteousness, and the main idea is a declaration, like that, um, that you make a decision, you trust in Jesus as your Savior, right, and then you then are declared righteous by God, and then your sins are forgiven. Uh, and why are you forgiven? Well, because some of Jesus's merit like has been credited to your account that's the imputation language Um, And so the idea is that Jesus' righteousness gets imputed to your account. Um, One obstacle to that way of looking at things is that the Bible never speaks of it in that way. Um, The Bible speaks about imputation, but it's not Christ's righteousness that's imputed to a person's account. It's actually faith that's credited as righteousness. So the Scripture does use the language of crediting with regard to righteousness, but it's not actually Christ's righteousness that gets credited for our righteousness. It's actually, Paul says, faith is credited for righteousness. So how do those things work, right? And so there's some slippage in the way in which Protestants have spoken about imputed righteousness that needs to be um, worked out a bit. All right. And so that's the, on the Protestant side, we have like the model of imputed. The Catholic side has tended to favor a language of imparted righteousness. Um, and this, the, the idea is that you are actually made righteous. So that like, a, and this happens for Catholics at baptism, and it can't happen apart from baptism. So it it has to happen through the act of baptism that when you are baptized, God regenerates you in such a way that you are actually made right. You You are not a righteous person, but God implanted a small seed of righteousness to you through the act of baptism, along with faith, hope, and love, and that you then need to cause that to grow. Like your, your, your job is to become increasingly a righteous person, but you are actually a really righteous person within the Protestant model. Like you are not, um, you're not a righteous person entirely. You are simultaneously a sinner and a righteous person. So like the idea is Christ's righteousness has been imparted to you, but it's like a garment that covers over your sin. Right. Um, and so the Catholic model objects to that partly because they say, no, like, like God would be an unjust judge if he did that. Like God actually has to make you righteous yourself. And he does it through Jesus's merits. Uh, but you actually have to become a righteous person. I actually think both of those models are wrong. This is not something I get into in the new book. This is not why the gospel at all. This is stuff in salvation by allegiance alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I draw from, um, especially the ideas of, of Mike Bird, a New Testament scholar and work with his ideas and further them some to articulate a, a different model called incorporated righteousness that I think actually better represents scripture. And within incorporated righteousness, Jesus is the kingly head and that whenever we're justified, it's because we've entered into his body. Um, so that we then, the metaphor would be of organic union with him. And so that we're righteous because our kingly head is righteous too. So I don't think that either the language of imputed righteousness or imparted righteousness really actually accurately tracks scripture. But it's more accurate to say that we're justified as we enter into the justified body, um, mm-hmm. which is um, which is the, the body of Christ, of the king. Yeah.
0: yeah. So in what way then does incorporated justification relate to what christians regularly refer to as sanctification
1: okay and so yeah again that we're going to do a sticky wicket here so like yeah part of the way in which protestants carved out a space for a distinctive space for justification was by creating the second category called sanctification um, and so that there's what's traditionally called the order of salvation within protestantism um, and so, um, and this would be pretty standard w- across the spectrum in Protestantism. Like, like Luther actually didn't have these ideas, and so um, it's really Calvin who develops these ideas, was Melanchthon, and Calvin, um, really, who began to develop these ideas. Um, Luther himself does not have these categories of, of a separate category for sanctification, per se. But the order of salvation, as it came to the heart of the order of salvation, as it came to be articulated by most Protestants, this would include John Wesley, too, people who are not Calvinists, like Wesley's on the other end of the spectrum, as more of an Arminian. Uh, but anyway, like they, the order was just—first a person is justified, and then a person is sanctified, and then a person is glorified. That kind of became the heart of what's called the order of salvation. The problem is that when Protestant, when Protestantism carved out that separate category called sanctification, um, they did so without strong scriptural warrant. Um, really, it's Calvin's idea. he 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 like w- whenever he tries to give evidence for it, it's mostly a philosophical distinction he makes. He says, like, well, just as the sun, you know, produces light and heat, but we know that light and heat aren't the same thing, but they're related. So also with justification and sanctification. But the category sanctification does not end up having a strong um, root in scripture. You can't really mm-hmm. point at text and be like, um, okay, like this is talking about how an individual person is sanctified within an order of salvation. The proof texts that are usually trotted out for that. there's a couple of them. Um, they they don't intend that at all. they're 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 misused. Um, and so that that's that becomes a real weakness in the Protestant model. Many Protestants today, including people like Michael Gorman and other scholars who are on the front front lines of this discussion, Inti um, right, they would prefer to just speak about the three tenses of justification. The justification has a past, present, and a future, uh, and that the category of sanctification is not a Pauline category. So we get it gets gets into a very complicated technical conversation mm-hmm. about all of that. I myself would prefer to use the language of transformation instead of sanctification mm-hmm. uh, because we do have that idea of transformation and coming to be conformed to the image like that would be pauline language so i would I would tend to want to use that language rather than sanctification language if if that makes sense,
0: yeah, and I think that relates at least somewhat to that glory cycle and the restoration of glory that you talk about, in- yes and why yeah, the gospel. It's,
1: it's, it's, coordinated with that. Although I don't, I don't draw out like exactly how that all, yeah, I don't draw it out in Ordo salutis language or order of salvation language, but you're right behind the scenes. That's what's going on. Yes.
0: Yeah. Is, is there a lay level book that would get into this kind of past, present, future justification versus sanctification terminology that you're
1: aware of? Well, N.T. Wright has a book, um, Justification. I don't know if I would say it's lay level, um, and I don't agree with everything Wright says there, but I would say that's a pr- probably your best starting point if you wanted to look at Justification specifically. Um, I mean, other than that, probably, I mean, my stuff in Salvation by Allegiance Alone Chapter 8 might be as popular as stuff as you'll find out there. It's not highly technical um, that that Chapter 8 um, may be as accessible as anything, mm-hmm. well, at least that comes to mind for me.
0: Okay. Great. Well, I have three final questions for you as we work toward the end here. The first is a lot of our church members will be really familiar with Greg Gilbert's book, What What Is the Gospel. And I remember, I think during 2020, there was some brouhaha related to a T4G um, on that account. Can Can you really briefly just comment on what you would say are the best, most helpful aspects of What Is the Gospel, and where you would be distinguishing your work from it
1: yeah i mean greg gilbert's obviously a christian brother lots of christian truths in his book Um, what is the gospel um the problem is um like it's not like so much that like he um yeah, like you may like be reading through it and like it's like this page seems like it's a great page. The problem is the overall and, and I would tend to agree, like there's, there's on sometimes on that ground level, there's nothing wrong with the content. Like, I mean, he's he's an, an, you know, more or less an accurate, traditionally minded person. Right. Um, but I think that the larger problem is that he answers the entire question wrong like the question like what is the gospel like he presents he 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 draws a framework that um that is really a, an imposition on the text like he essentially um runs through what's called the roman's road framework he essentially says what is the gospel well it's god is righteous Man is a sinner. Jesus is the savior. So put your faith in him and repent. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, those things are all true. <laughs> like every single one of them. God is righteous. Like humans are sinners. Right. That's that, that, the problem isn't on that level of like of of the truths of salvation. The problem is on the level of like, is that actually what the Bible says the gospel is? And whenever you begin to inspect with care what the Bible says about the gospel, whenever you join together all the content statements in the Bible where they explicate what the gospel is, the gospel is actually a narrative about how Jesus became king. The gospel Mm -hmm. begins with the Father sending the Son, right? He takes on human flesh in the line of David, fulfilling the Davidic promises. Uh, he dies on uh, in accordance with the scriptures for our sins. Right? He's he's then buried. He's raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He's seen by many witnesses, and then he's enthroned at the right hand of God. Uh, and then from that position, then he sends forth the Spirit along with the Father, and he'll come again as judge. That's actually what the Bible describes as the gospel. That's like way different than just saying like God is righteous, you know, you know, man is a sinner, Jesus is a Savior, mm-hmm. so repent and believe. Like, that it, like the, the, what he answers the question has entirely the wrong shape, and that mm-hmm. has implications, because when we come to see then like, claims that he makes that like justification by faith is the heart of the gospel that he and others make, right? Um, that's actually wrong-headed, uh, because it's actually, the Bible doesn't actually say justification is part of the gospel at all. Justification is a benefit that comes from the gospel. It's not actually part of the gospel. Uh, and so whenever we see, instead, justification is a benefit that the people of God receive, that then I get the opportunity to have, when I have faith— It helps us to see that, like, something as central as justification by faith, it's a true doctrine. Like, is justification by faith true? Yes. Is it the gospel? No. It's not the gospel because it's, in fact, justification is a benefit of the gospel, and faith is how we respond to the gospel, but neither one is technically part of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And that actually matters theologically for a whole bunch of reasons I could unpack. But uh, that at least gets you started.
0: Yeah, that's really helpful. So you think— Good and true things, but just not the things that should be said in answer to the question, what is the gospel?
1: Yeah, yeah, his book great. is entirely, his His book is very inaccurate in terms of the answer to the question, what is the gospel, as a whole. Like, he has some accurate moments, but yeah, yeah as a whole answer, his his book is quite inaccurate, yeah. Scott McKnight, N.T. Wright, uh, they would do much better at answering that question. They've also written popular books um, answering mm-hmm. the question, what mm-hmm. is the gospel?
0: Yeah, great. So, how would you share the gospel with an unbeliever? What? How would you articulate the gospel to someone who's never been in a church in their life?
1: Um, I would start by, um, you know, obviously you want to— it, it it can depend contextually. Like there are times for sharing the gospel with somebody just, you know, as like street evangelism. Like you're just you're you're sharing the gospel with anyone and everyone. There's there's a place for public invitation, which will look very different, right? If uh mm-hmm. like and I think that that's actually one of the most common and important ways we share the gospel is through public invitation. But if I'm personally like gonna share the gospel with somebody, it's usually somebody I know. Um, I'm not usually going to like just be like, hey, how are you doing? Here's the gospel. Right. Um, So I'm going to usually start by telling stories of my own brokenness um, as I get to know somebody. That would be my first my my number one technique would be let me tell you about some stories where I didn't allow um, myself to follow God's ways, didn't allow Jesus to be king over my life right? And uh, begin to tell stories about my own brokenness. And the reason we do that is we want to awaken in somebody who's listening, um, a couple of things, one, a sense of your own sincerity, um, and also a sense of their own brokenness. Um, like I could just say like, um, Oh, Aaron, but Hey, by the way, I'd like to share the gospel with you. And did you know you're a serious sinner? Um, might it not be better to start with a story of like my own sin and helping you to see the echo of your own sin and my sin? Right, so you see, yeah, I've done some of those things too. It awakens your awareness of your sinfulness, right, and that you are not um, like making the best choices in your life. Um, And as part of that, then, like I would speak about restoration. Like how like how has God brought healing in some areas of my life? And so I would speak about probably some areas of brokenness where I haven't experienced full healing, but others were like, no, like I actually pretty much have experienced full healing of this in Jesus. And I would really want to share both of those, saying, Hey, here's some things that are still in process for me, but here's some ways in which like I've had I've experienced full healing in this area because of King Jesus. And there's hope for everybody who wants to uh, become fully who God wants them to be. So as part of all that, I'm trying to cast vision for like, what does it mean to be fully human? What does it mean to full, what does full restoration look? And people are going to be most motivated to change whenever they sense that there is something more for them. Right. That that they OK, like I, I'm living my life. I'm getting by like, I, OK, I realize I make some bad choices here or there, but I, I think I am a fundamentally good person. And then when they f- reflect on it, they're like, well, OK, there's some areas I'm fudging it. Right. And you want to awaken in them like a sense of they could be so much better. But if they were not if they were not falling back on lies anymore, if they weren't um if they weren't, you know, in this sexually immoral relationship, God has a beautiful family plan for them. If they're like various areas where you' like, don't you realize your life could be so much more, right? If you were to embrace King Jesus. That's where I really work. And so I try to get people to make a loyalty to com- commitment to this Jesus. And then, of course, I'm giving the broader narrative. right Who is this Jesus guy, right? Uh, mm-hmm. speaking about the ten point gospel as I outline it, Yeah.
0: Yeah, Well, you're already kind of getting into it, but as we close, what would you encourage Christians to think about as they try to say, okay, the gospel's for all of life, the gospel's for Christians too. How would you encourage Christians to relate to the gospel announcement as they continue to walk with the Lord?
1: Yeah, to remember that the gospel is about holistic restoration, right? That the gospel is not just about a one-time decision. There is a one-time decision in the sense that there is a point in time where you were not allegiant to Jesus, but you declared your allegiance to Jesus and you entered into his saving community, which is where the Holy Spirit is present, right? We need to learn to walk in light of that Holy Spirit and to be guided into full restoration, right? That is also part of salvation. That's not like some optional extra. Like, God wants to bring each of us to perfection. So the gospel is necessary because God is calling us always to a higher allegiance, a deeper loyalty to Him, but that's actually for our own good, right it's It's something that results in our fullest human flourishing.
0: yeah, well, in this talk, you've been really encouraging, stimulating. I think we've hit a lot of like dived into different aspects of your writing, but I just encourage any of our listeners pick up any of Dr. Bates's book, you know why the Gospel might be a really good place to start. Is that where you'd encourage people to start?
1: I, I think apart from the gospel precisely why the gospel is my most accessible book.
0: Okay. Yeah. So I'd, if you're listening and you have questions about, okay, what does all of this mean or what's the bigger picture? I've tried to give you a good taste of some of these things, but pick up the book. And if you're a member of our church and would have trouble accessing it or purchasing it, just let us know and we will make sure you get a copy. Dr. Bates, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Blessings as you keep writing and speaking and talking with people about this important topic. Thank you, Aaron. This podcast is a ministry of Resurrection Church in Burnsville, Minnesota. To learn more, you can visit us online at www.resurrectionmn.org.